1: I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome. I recently spoke with Nathan Hesselink about his new book, Samul Nori, Contemporary Korean Drumming and the Rebirth of Itinerant Performance Culture. The University of Chicago Press published that in 2012. Now, I loved reading this book for so many reasons. It's not only really interesting and really smooth to read, he's a very good writer and a very clear arguer and and, um, very compelling arguer, but it's also just an inherently fascinating case study. So if you're interested in the history of East Asian studies or the contemporary studies of East Asia, it's a really wonderful window into Korean history, Korean pop culture, um, and Korean musical culture. But also, if you're just more broadly interested in music, it's a really deep study, um, but without feeling that it's overwhelmingly technical of a part of musical culture that you may not know much about and really helpfully for me as somebody who didn't know much about um, the history of drumming of Korean drumming at all before I came to this study there's a CD in the back of the book that includes examples of a lot of the pieces that he very helpfully leads us through and that he talks about in the book so that you can listen along while you're reading it's totally fascinating it immediately made me want to go out and watch YouTube videos and get CDs of a lot of the groups that he talks about, um, and the the collaborations, rather, that he talks about in the book. And it was a lot of fun to talk with him about it. So I highly recommend um, reading the book, learning more about the drumming culture of contemporary Korea that he talks about in the book, and kicking back and listening not only to the interview, but also to the music um, that the interview is about. It's wonderful, and I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with Nathan Hesselink about his new book, Samul Nori, Contemporary Korean Drumming, and the Rebirth of Itinerant Performance Culture. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Nathan, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today.
0: Great, thanks for having me.
1: So, Nathan, could you start us off by saying just a little bit about your background? What brought you to the field of ethnomusicology of Korea in the first place?
0: Yeah, I I guess in a nutshell, um, my parents were missionaries in Japan, so I I grew up in Japan until I was six, but really... All my older brothers and sisters were born and raised in Japan, and even when we moved back to the U.S., um, we were kind of the strange household in this otherwise basically all-Dutch community uh, that had all this Japanese culture in it, so music and art, and um, whenever basically any any Japanese people were within about 100 miles of my parents' house, they would somehow you know, work their way into our living room, and so um, growing up, I just always had this uh, deep connection with Japan, and... Um, after college, actually went and taught English, like many people do, uh, in Japan, kind of trying to reconnect with Japan on an adult level. So that that's kind of the East Asian background. And from there, I um, discovered Japanese traditional music, and that's really what my MA and my introduction to ethnomusicology was through Japanese traditional music. So that that's my first kind of taste of non-Western music and my introduction to that. When... Um, when I finished my MA, I went back to Japan to do um, really extensive fieldwork in this particular... It's actually a female vocal genre, which is a very long story. Um, it's it's geisha songs, which was my master's thesis. But I went to study with a geisha teacher and learn the vocal art and the and the music. And while I was in Japan, I was able to travel to Korea. And during that time, I actually heard Samulnori. It wasn't the original Samulnori group. It was the, um, the National Center Samulnori group. And it was really... Almost literally within about a you know a twenty minute uh, segment of time that I discovered that that Korean percussion was really uh, uh, what I wanted to pursue you know for the PhD and hence how I found my way into it. But so it was kind of a long meandering way um, into Korean traditional music, but it was really through Japan, which I think many of my colleagues, I think in Korean studies, also kind of discovered Korea through Japan as well.
1: And didn't you mention in the book that it was actually kind of on a lark that you wound up? Um... Getting to that performance of Korean traditional music in the first place—it was you were actually in Korea to renew a visa or something.
0: Yes, right? exactly. Yeah, exactly. I was—I um, was getting a slightly better teaching job uh, in Japan, which would give me more time to take lessons. Uh, I wasn't a particularly good English teacher, um, and uh, during that time, I had to leave the country. And my then fiancé—I mean, we're married now—but she had family in Seoul. And uh, so I had a place to stay, and I was just in Seoul. It was my first time to Korea, and I was there for a week, and it was the last day. In fact, I think it was July 4th, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, my future sister-in-law said, oh, you know, you're know, you into traditional music of Japan. Well, that's really great, but you know, you should come hear Korean traditional music. She was a, a little bit nationalistic. So I said, sure, that's great. I don't know anything about Korean traditional music, almost nothing. And um, so she invited me to this this program, this afternoon concert, and it was the last on this program, which was really designed for foreigners and I think Korean schoolchildren uh, to introduce Korean traditional music, and it was about a you know eight nine minute performance of the, the resident resident Samolodi team. So you're right; it was really the tail end of a visit, almost almost by accident or on a lark, as you say, and um, that that in many ways really made all the difference.
1: Now, the book that we are talking about today looks at a kind of Korean percussion music as embodied in a particular group, the Samul Nori group, in 20th century Korea. Can you talk a little bit about how you eventually came to this topic from your original interest in traditional Korean percussion music and in your uh, previous work on uh, traditional Korean music?
0: Yeah, I mean, as I actually um, point out in the, the introduction to this book, um... My initial interest was actually in Samulmori, which, you know, we may talk about this more in, in detail in a little bit here, but it's essentially a kind of contemporary urban reworking of of a, a much older, um, sort of amateur based traditional percussion, you know, folk percussion tradition. And so, you know, I, I was able to go to Korea in 93 and 94 for a workshop. And I really wanted to study this more recent Samulmori phenomenon. And, um, a number of people basically steered me clear of that, saying, well, if you really want to study what's traditional, or at least what's older in Korea, you should study this older folk drumming tradition, which is known by a, a number of names. But um, So it's really, and then I decided, well, yeah, okay, that I guess that makes sense, and I do want to know sort of what's been around, I guess, before, before I look at sort of contemporary culture or visions or re-envisioning of this tradition. So um, that's how I got into Korean folk percussion, which is known as Pumul or Nongak or Pumulgut, or all these various indigenous terms. but So that's what I ended up doing for, for my PhD work, was living out in the countryside working with rural performers for the most part, though also with a few semi-professional performers, and really trying to figure out what Korean folk percussion meant kind of in the late 20th century. I mean, I tried to do some historical work, and that comes out in this most recent book as well, but really the dissertation was focused on to document what was going on in the late 20th century, and musically, so little of the music had been written down or notated, and so that that's how I, I got into Korean folk percussion, and then once I'd spent many years after the dissertation and teaching the ensemble and everything, uh, I kept remembering back to that performance that I'd seen, you know, back in 92, I think, of Samul that one summer, and um, kind of on the sly, really, started writing about Samulnori and collecting recordings and all of this on the side, without really talking to a lot of people about it, but just sort of thinking, well, I'm going to somehow do something with Samulnori. And to be honest, I kept thinking someone would publish a book on them. I mean, they've been popular for so long, and they've been in the media for so long, and if most people, if they know anything about Korean music, it's only Samulnori. Mostly I was just being polite. I had a lot of grad school friends who were writing dissertations on Samulnori, and I kept thinking you know, every year, okay, a book's going to come out, a book's going to come out, Eight years clack by, nine years clack by. Well, you know, I'm, I'm growing old here, waiting for this book to come out. And so, I mean, I'm oversimplifying this a little bit, but um, I decided I'd, I'd collected enough and I talked to people and I had my brain wrapped around a way of organizing this book. And so that that's eventually how, how this book comes out. But my interest in Samunori is actually older than the full percussion uh, sort of version or, or, or variant of the tradition and um it's just something I've kept on a back burner, you know, up until quite recently.
1: Well the um the book itself, the introduction itself, and this is um this, among many other things, this this alone is worth the price of admission, but it opens up with this beautiful quote uh, about children of wandering minstrels and so I just want to mention that before we move on to just direct listeners when you do listeners um, pick up a copy of the book and I hope that you do it's wonderful Um, and the book itself and we'll get to this later on as well includes not just the text, but also an accompanying CD that features four of the musical pieces that are actually analyzed and discussed in the text itself. Um, so it's, it's a wonderful thing to have, and it's a wonderful object. But this quotation chil- about children of wandering minstrels, I just loved, 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 and I had to stop there um, <laughs> when I started reading the book and just take it in because it was so beautiful. But um, as we get into the book itself, The book, um, at least the introduction after this beautiful quote, opens with an account of the first concert in a cramped basement in Seoul in 1978 of an ensemble that called themselves Samonori. So there are, to get us started, and we've already used this term and talked a little bit about your interest in samul nori, but let's lay the foundation here for what's to come by talking a little bit about what this is. There are two samul noris in the book. There's the group named samul nori, and there's the larger musical category that um, the group is part of that you talk about in the context of a more general term, samul nori. So So same kind of word, written a little bit differently, um, in at least in English transcription, let's um, let's lay the groundwork. So first the category. Can you talk a little bit about this type of music, samulnori, and situate it as an art form um, in relation to other forms of uh, traditional or folk Korean percussion music?
0: Yeah, I'll, uh, this is maybe not the order you just asked for, but for me it's it going to go chronologically. Um, sure. So, yeah, so essentially, uh, as you say in the introduction to the book, um, and then later in chapter 2, which I guess we'll get to in a, in a few moments, but... Um, really, this all is born of Korean traditional music culture in the 1970s. And, then, and to be very, very brief, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, but in the 1970s, um, essentially you have a number of kind of nationalistic movements within Korea, within literature and art and drama and music, that are trying to preserve and promote Korean traditional music. Because 1970s is really when... Western classical music in terms of the construction of opera halls and orchestra halls and all this come in. So that's kind of the context for a number of traditional musicians, not just in percussion, but in voice and theater and dance, are thinking of ways of modifying or, or going back to older roots or somehow making this art form pertinent to audiences, uh, particularly urban audiences of Korea and Seoul, being the largest city and the largest population in South Korea. And so that's the context for what Samul is born out of. So in the already the kind of mid-1970s, Korean folk percussion is not particularly um, popular. Uh, In the countryside, it's doing all right, but the city, it's basically disappeared. And so um, you've got a number of um, young percussionists, uh, you know, late teens, early 20s, that are really thinking of many different ways of how can they re-envision folk percussion um, from the countryside, um, essentially, into an um, in, in urban context. Carla, I'm sorry. One second. I've got someone knocking on
1: Okay, Nathan. Sorry about that. So we're back um, after pausing very briefly. Um, and also, this gives me a chance to say happy birthday. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for listeners, there are apparently people um, with a, a cake and uh, who have come to extend their birthday wishes. So um, now that we've done that, uh, you <laughs> I'm sorry for the interruption. So you were in the middle of talking about the, um, the early context of Samoanodi and the development of this.
0: Yeah, so well, I was talking in particular about um, folk percussionists in the 1970s, particularly younger generations of folk percussionists, most of them from the countryside, uh, who had moved to Seoul to look for work or uh, to go to music conservatories or academies and basically thinking of ways of re-envisioning. And there were many different strategies thought of in the 1970s about how could you get this countryside folk tradition kind of reinvigorated, particularly for people uh, in concert hall culture, which is really a part of what I talk about in the second chapter. And so um, essentially there was a group of four young men who decided to essentially boil down this huge, outdoor, raucous, amazing um, folk tradition into essentially putting chamber music and onto a concert hall stage. And I know that's later chapter, so not to go into too much detail on that. But So essentially Samulnori represents rethinking of this broad, outdoor, largely amateur-based, uh, very long performances of loud, boisterous percussion music and dance into a much smaller, intimate space of the concert hall. And so when, when this sort of re-envisioning was happening in the 1970s, they needed to come up with a name to distinguish what they were doing. And a whole bunch of names were thrown out, even things like new Pumul or new Nongat. Those were the old terms for for, uh, for folk percussion. And samulnori. Nori... Um, might sound kind of poetic if you don't speak Korean, but literally uh it's very descriptive in its in its designation. Samul just means four things, uh, literally. But in this context it refers to the four core percussion instruments, two drums and two gongs. And then nori um means in the countryside uh way of thinking of it, it means kind of folk entertainment. So, there are many kinds of nori. So, for example, um, tightrope walking is a kind of nori. It's a kind of folk entertainment. Bowl spinning is a kind of folk entertainment. Um, Public theater is a kind. And so, there are, there are reasons for this, which I guess we'll talk about maybe when talking about the first chapter and the Namsadan. But So, they took this word nori that's very kind of meaning-laden, at least from the countryside and itinerant true performance culture, and linked it with samo meaning for instance. So, now when in, in we Romanize this in English, it's... It's usually in regular font, and the S and the N are capitalized, and that's the way that the group has designated it as the original group. And then to be very brief, that original group became so popular and really took over the traditional music world that by the early 1980s, there were a number of basically other groups mimicking or outright imitating the original Salmonodi group, and so it became so broad, it, it actually ended up becoming a genre. So today when we say Salmonodi, it re- refers to a genre, which I've Romanized, as kind of, as two words in an italics, just to help readers distinguish between the two. So today, most people, when you say samonori, it refers to this genre of chamber music using these Korean traditional percussion instruments. And the original group is now named after the, the last the original members still with them, Kim Doksu, And so it's called Kim Doksu Samulnori. Samonori. So it's a little confusing, but that's really, you've got the original group and the genre. Great,
1: thank you so much. So you talk a little bit at the beginning of the book about your decision to construct a very particular scope for the book. So even though this is a book about Samo the group, you've decided to limit the scope to the first 20 years or so of the group's existence, which means not including a lot of what might otherwise fall under the rubric of a kind of modern history of this group. Can you talk a little bit about that choice and what you decided not to write about um, when you were constructing the, um, the framework that you, that ultimately became the
0: yeah, well, I, first of all, I should preface this by saying that most of uh, my other writing on Korea or Japan has never really taken that much of a historical approach. And so that, that idea um, initially uh, to frame this kind of historically or somewhat chronologically was new for me. And so that was a kind of first choice because I thought it would make the most sense. Though so the book does jump around in time a little bit. Um, and then secondly, um, I started thinking about all of the issues and and when you look at the, the Korean um, academic scholarship that's written about Salman as well as sort of the, the journalistic stuff, there's just so much out there, and there's so many different angles. And so it was also an easier way, not easy, but easier way for me to kind of get a handle on this, to, to, um, to limit myself to that first 20 years, because so much happened in that first 20 years. And it's also kind of, a, it, it, also, uh, it also describes its height of popularity. And there are a number of other things that kind of ended right at about the the 20-year mark. And so for me, all of what for me were a lot of these really kind of central issues that each of the chapters were organized around, all of them happened within that first 20 years. And in many ways, I feel, even though there are many new developments of the genre, uh, I think, um, and even with the original group, I think for people trying to understand, if they haven't read anything in English on Samulnori, or to understand its place and how it came about, which there still isn't a lot written about it in English, that's sort of why I decided to do that. In terms of what I chose not to to address, um, there are a bunch of things. First, I didn't really talk much about reception history. Um, I mean, I talk a little bit about what local drummers feel about it and what some of the original performers feel about it in the media, but that's really a whole different study. And in fact, there's, uh, if I can do a little shout-out for a a friend in Valley, um, there's a woman, Catherine Lee, who received her PhD from Harvard just last year, and she's now a new um, assistant professor at UC Davis. Her dissertation at Harvard was on Uh, reception history of Samunori, and she actually worked in their office for a couple years back in the 90s, and she really talks about uh, kind of all the political and and these other ramifications of what happened when Samunori converted this countryside thing to the stage, and so that's also a really fascinating study, which will eventually get published as well, so I chose not to talk so much about that, and there's also a lot of really sensational stories. It would have been easy to make this book. You don't think of academic books as being sexy, but um, I mean, I I really made this more interesting in a way. I talked about the four original members. Well, the the, what people are now kind of a misnomer, but the four most famous of the of the kind of founders of the Uh, group—they have really tremendous stories in terms of drug usage and groupies and uh, incarceration and, you know, power plays and all the kinds of things that you you would follow maybe with a rock band or something. And so I just really didn't want to sensationalize um, any of that that information. And then the last aspect, although there are many I didn't talk about, I didn't talk that much about um, kind of the gendering of the of the performers and everything. It, it really is, at least in the beginning, as was full percussion, a male-dominated art. But having said that, there are a couple, you know, uh, many people aren't going to know this, but if if you look at the the four people that I dedicate this book to, they're actually all women. Um, they're, they're, partially, I did that. Mostly, I did that is because these are four amazing women. But uh, for various reasons that I, I do that. But the first one says E part, but that's really most people who, who know me or know who I've studied with. Uh, her name is Pakuna, and she's the only female Sammamore teacher um, at the national center. And she was kind of in the startup group in the late 1980s and was still one of the only female famous Samuamodi players. Again, an entire dissertation could be written about her and about kind of the role of women in all of this, but again, it was just, um, it was just for me, it, it would have taken me away from some of these other things at least at the time that I thought were more interesting. You're
1: mentioning just a little bit earlier your um, incorporation of an element of the history of or the genealogy of this musical practice that you give us such a beautiful account of in the book. And, and the book really is all about the music, and I really appreciated that as a reader, that we didn't have you know a lot of the, the <laughs> stuff that you decided not to. I think it was a smart choice. Um, but your implication of the history as part of this larger story that you're telling really helps underline one of the points that you talk about early in the book. And this is, um, I think, a really important point. And this is the importance of jettisoning or getting rid of these artificially constructed dichotomies that we typically bring to understanding Um History and contemporary practice in many, many different ways—old and new, traditional and modern, innovative versus um, conservative, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this is um, this brings us to a phrase that uh, really frames the book. It it frames it. At the, it um, comes up at least in the way you introduce the beginning and the very end of the book. And this is the phrase: uh, popko changxin. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Preserving the old while creating the new. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that? Um, because it is it, it, in ter- before we actually get in uh, right into the Nam Sutong and the genealogy, that is a really crucial way of framing the book, both at the beginning and at the end.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, to be honest, I can't remember. I don't think I mentioned it in the book either. I don't remember where I discovered that phrase. But it, it um, while well, I was thinking about Nodi and, and folk drumming my dissertation and everything, I kept trying to. The, the framework that I was using or the lens was really the cultural asset system, which I don't talk so much about in here, but for, for listeners or readers who aren't familiar with this, you know, just a 30-second you know, 30, thirty second introduction. Essentially, South Korea in the, in the early 1960s started this cultural asset preservation system. It was a law and it was a system to basically preserve both you know tangible and intangible objects of, of Korean traditional culture. And so this is everything from, aspects of music and dance and other kinds of performative art, but it also had to do with things like Buddhist temples and pottery and things like this. And it was based off the Japanese system and it's now emulated by UNESCO. And I think there's similar systems in Vietnam as well, but in France. But um, so for me, that was always the lens that that whatever was traditional, it had kind of this this original form and it had a sort of preservationist bent. And I just couldn't in the beginning anyways, I couldn't, Align myself with that vision of tradition, along with what I was seeing with Samolodi. And to be honest, in the early years, I kind of looked at Samolodi as non-traditional as well—not even neo-traditional, just kind of non-traditional. And then, as I say in the book, you know, I started taking lessons later with Samolodi teachers, and then I discovered this about about this itinerant troop culture, which I guess we'll talk about in a moment. But um, the idea that uh, there's this whole aspect of Korean history that I, that I wasn't aware of, and I think a number of people aren't aware of, and Somewhere in there, I came upon this, this four Chinese character phrase. And these are, these are, um, they're kind of like, not necessarily like, like Zen koans or something, because a lot of them are quite straightforward in the meaning, but there are hundreds and hundreds of these, these four Chinese character little phrases that have some little, you know, nugget of wisdom in them. In this particular one, Paul Ko Xin," preserve the old while creating the new, um, you know, it, it has me for a whole bunch of reasons. But as soon as I read that or I saw those characters, I thought, "This is absolutely." Uh, what I think about samonori Nodi and a lot of other performance arts in Korea, not not just, and I think in general about tradition, I started getting much broader with that idea. But so I, I saw that, but then it still took me time to locate it, and then I ended up finding out that it was by this literary scholar uh, already back in the eighteen hundreds, who actually is related to another one of the, the people that I thank uh, in the beginning of this book. Uh, this woman, I have it as C Park, it's actually uh, Park chan who's um, a Pansori singer who teaches at Ohio State University. It's actually one of her distant relatives who coined that phrase in a particular work. So then all of a sudden, just a whole bunch, and, and also Chan Park, I mean, she also does modern geeks on Pansori, and she's, she's brought English with Korean singing. That's, that's a whole other conversation. But um, So she was kind of a, lo- a guiding light for me as well. And so... Um, with, with that meaning, I started using that phrase in some earlier writings. And then when, when I came up to the book as a way of organizing the, the introduction and conclusion, I thought, um, this is really fantastic. Like, I mean, for me anyway, and obviously for a Korean a couple hundred years ago, that that's really tradition was always about, um, <laughs> about bringing the current and the contemporary. You know, and there's always kind of a performance element of it as well
1: is very um, reminiscent of the kinds of conversations that we have in um, scholarly communities on traditional medicine in East Asia as well. So there's the same kind of discussion about tradition incorporating both the old and the new. and It's really interesting. So let's get to these Namsadang. You're arguing in the book that Samal Nori had its roots in itinerant true performance culture in the 18th and 19th centuries, or the culture of Namsadang, these Namsadang um, troop these people that we've been referencing without talking uh, in detail about it. These are kind of wandering minstrels, and this really um, constitutes a core argument of the book. So, could you introduce the Namsadang for us? Who were they, and um, what do we need to know about them in order to understand this period of the genealogy of of what became Samodori?
0: Yeah, well, for me, uh, what's interesting is that there, there have been some recent changes, but again, in general, when you read Korean music history books in Korean or English or German or whatever language you're choosing, um, it tends to focus on upper class culture and uh, like aristocratic culture and court culture, and that's an easy way. That's it's a path of least resistance because most of the written documentation in Korea, as it is in other East Asian countries, was written by court, you know, by the elites. And so, in the same way, when you look at Western music history, we tend to study the music of you know of the palaces and and princes and kings. When you think of Beethoven, Mozart, and all of this, and so Korean music history reads in a very similar way. And yet, not only is representing you know something like eight or nine percent of the music activity of Koreans. And so, uh, you know, in the 18th and 19th centuries, there's this tremendous amount of folk music activity, and a number of genres are being born essentially under the nose of of, of court uh, records, historians, scholars, etc. During that period, and so Namseodang were uh, kind of the extreme opposite end in terms of social hierarchy. So you have court music at one side, and the Sedong would have been the absolute bottom, and uh, according to court uh, dictates, of course. um, The Sedong, as you say, were uh, uh, part of a much larger movement of uh, itinerant troops or uh, kind of wandering minstrel troops, which goes back many hundreds of years in Korea, and there's a lot of overlap with Manchuria and Mongolia and China, with essentially traveling theater troops that uh, were made up of, of, of commoner classes or even kind of uh, you know, within a kind of caste system, I guess, sort of untouchables in a way uh, as well within Korea. And um, these were groups of um, musicians and dancers and actors who traveled up and down Korea, essentially performing or busking um, for their living. And in a Korean context, there are many different kinds of groups, but most of them shared in common. Um, it was a multi a multi-sided, multi-performance uh, variety show. And so in the case of the Namsadang, it represented not only music and dance, but there was also bull spinning and tightrope walking and mask dance and puppet theater um, and a number of other acts which they incorporated. And it was all accompanied by music. By the time we get to the, to the sort of late 1800s, these groups had started to sort of solidify in terms of what the performance arts were. And they also started to for example, you'd have performance troops that were all men or all women. You, you didn't tend to have a lot of mixing between them because of various sort of social stigma uh, associated with that, particularly unmarried men and unmarried women traveling together. And the Sedan were, until quite recently, were all male performance troops that uh, had specific connections with fundraising and also with Buddhist temples. Uh, and so literally Sedan just means some sort of male Buddhist temple uh, performance group. And so... Um, these these were groups that were importantly, they were professionally based and they're, uh, they were constantly evolving. I guess for me that what was important, setting up this book for a context for Salmonori, was that um, the Namsadang's take on tradition was always something that changed. It was day to day, it was village to village, and, and for them to survive, it was constantly updating and revising, and it included things like uh, including virtuosity, right? Like the, the more impressive your lo- you know, tightrope walking was, like if you could do flips and jumps and stuff, you were better than the next Sedan group. And if your drummers could spin their hats faster and the guys could jump higher in the air and you could throw more bowls at one time, you know, et cetera, et cetera, um, that meant that, that your group was uh, going to excel. And so it was just a very different view of also what folk culture meant. Because I think even my path, background in the West, folk culture always meant kind of a, an unprofessional, kind of raw, simple, you know, sort of within quotation marks, you know, kind of authentic or something. And, and Saddam for me completely challenged or erased that kind of idea that you couldn't have virtuosity and change and kind of updating to culture and still be completely traditional. So that, that's why I made the book off with them. And that, that's for me. I mean, now there are Korean music histories that are beginning to include them. And I think that's a really crucial point to, um, to Korean music history.
1: Great, thank you. And in the capsule history that you're giving of Namsadang in this first chapter, you show us or you take us through a period of what you call decline and dormancy between 1900 and 1960 that, pref- or that prefaces a revival um, from 1960 to the present in the culture of Namsadang and the kind of re-envisioning of Namsadang within a modern Korean society. Can you talk a little bit about that later um, revival in the 1960s of Namsadang? Because that will ultimately lead us into the eventual emergence of Samulnori Nordi in the 1970s.
0: Yeah, so, you know, the 1960s, as I talked about a little while ago, um, Korea's just coming off of, of course, the uh, World War II and also Civil War, the Korean War. And so the 60s, you've got North and South separated and somewhat of stability there. But, of course, both countries are still uh, staggering from the from the two previous wars. And so in South Korea, as I said, I think it's 1962, they start this cultural asset or, or, or uh, cultural properties um, preservation law in order to basically start recovering tradition which was lost, particularly during the war. I mean, we're talking... Well, and also we have the Japanese annexation, of course, in 1910. So we're, we're looking at a good 50-year or more period in which a lot of the traditional arts uh, went underground or almost were destroyed. And this is true of the namsadan The namsadan where the, the activity was banned by the Japanese uh, already, I think, by 1914 or 13 or something. And so you know the Sedan go underground or they kind of disappear. And then as you get into the 50s and 60s, the Korean government is trying to revive, particularly folk cultures, I mean, you had court culture and things like this, but a lot of that was already notated or documented, so there wasn't the same sense of anxiety as there was with folk music, and so the Sedong are one of the early targets, I say targets, one of the early groups that, that are, are targeted to try to find people, the Sedong in the countryside to try to revive, or at least have some sense of oral history, or maybe some of the music down, some recording, something, and. The problem, of course, is that many of the older namsadan had died during this 50-year interim, and the few namsadan were children of namsadan who survived. The vast majority of them, they, they wanted to escape their past. I mean, they for as much as they loved the, the art that they were doing, they wanted to escape the social stigma, particularly for their children. So most of them never came out or never admitted to anyone, even to this day, that they were a part of the namsadan culture, and many of them moved to Seoul and changed their names and changed professions and essentially tried to give their children you know, educated into college and away from this past. And so um, what, what ends up happening is that the government is able to find a few quite elderly Namsadang who they begin to collect together, and those who can perform, they begin to form this kind of makeshift Namsadang troupe in and around Seoul. Uh, and this begins to happen uh, mid-late 1960s. And so that's that's the first sort of bit where Namsadang begins to sort of be reborn. And, and central to this, I'll just mention one fellow's name, but there's this professor, Shim Usung, who uh, very young scholar at the time, he's now extremely famous, well-known, but um, at the time, almost single-handedly, one of the researchers who, who literally went out into the countryside, found old namsedong Some of them you know, barely had enough money to, to eat or to go anywhere. He even invited many of them to his home, kind of in the area around Seoul, and fed many of them and actually took care of some of them for a number of years and really got this namsedong troop going. So that was the revival Early bits of revival, the late 60s and 70s, when the Nam Sedan were designated as one of these intangible cultural assets. But the context for Samul Nodi grows out of this. Essentially, you had younger, the older, the older Nam Sedang then started looking for younger players to teach this tradition. So we're already we've got a break in the tradition. I mean, in terms of the lineage, you've got a number of years where there's no direct lineage, except for a few of these old fellows, we begin to teach to, you know. Primarily men, a few women, but primarily men in their late teens, early 20s. And um, Kim Dok Soo is one of these, one of the founders of Modi, and this other fellow, Kim Yongbei, these are two extremely important names, but these are two of these younger generation guys, 16, 17, 18 year olds, who have contacts with this cultural asset Nam team. And in fact, Kim Yongbei actually joined the team for a while, but Kim Doksu was doing other things. But um, And I think. What happened when we read back on their, their, reflections on the, on the late 60s, early 70s is that they were excited about the Nam coming back and they thought, oh, maybe there's going to be a revival. Maybe Korean society will embrace them again. Um, but it doesn't happen. And there's kind of, there's, there's sort of infighting and there's, there's other aspects of trying to figure out what's going to happen with the Nam because now that they're a cultural asset, they're not allowed to change their performance art. They're not allowed to uh, update. Their thing, which was such a core part of what they did for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so, uh, really, what happens, what Samuel is blown out of is younger generation men at the time who said, you know, this isn't acceptable for us anyways. We have to be able to update this tradition. We have to be able to consider the concert hall stage. We have to consider maybe changing the instrumentation. We have to talk about fusion and amplification and all these other things that if Nam Sedang had continued to exist throughout time, probably would have embraced on their own. And so that's really the context for the first chapter and why it's important to understand that. And the Samulnori Nodi is really, uh, they, they were all official. I mean, some in their background. They're officially called Namzadang, you know, back in their teens and early 20s, but then broke away from the cultural asset team, to form, uh, their, own, uh, their own genre, their own vision of it. So that, that's why for me, I think, in, in my interpretation, and in I think most Koreans as well, uh, it's it's really it's an outgrowth of the namsonam thank you
1: now, early in the book and early in the chapter before we move on, you introduce three notions that not only help us understand the history of the Namsadang and sort of the history of the Namsadang in this broader context, but also link up the story that you're telling with within a larger, or with a larger histori- historiography um, in many fields. And these are notions that I'll just mention, but I won't ask you to talk about at this point of cosmopolitanism, nationalism, and globalization. And you've already mentioned a little bit about the interactions of Namsedong with China and with Mongolia, which sort of gets at a kind of early history of these globalizing forces. But there's another theme that also comes up that's really central to a lot of what you're doing in the book, and that is um, also right now being thematized as a central concern for understanding a whole bunch of humanistic fields, from the early modern world to the history of science and medicine to the circulation of images, objects, people, and ideas more broadly. And that is the theme of itinerancy, so itinerancy and movement. So in the course of the book, you really seem to be urging us to understand Samo Nordy in this wider context of the importance of thinking about Kind of transformative and generative force and aspects of itinerancy and movement. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that um, as it shapes the way you think about this work.
0: Yeah, well, no. I mean, thank you for picking up on that because really, um, in terms of the title, a lot of people who work with books, we have all these really um, kind of interesting titles that are usually shot down uh, by the publishers. <laughs> Uh, because they get maybe too far away. And I really wanted to have motion or on the road or some kind of... It works its way into chapter titles, but I, I couldn't really get it into the... Uh, although I got itinerant performance culture into the subtitle. But um, yeah, so that itinerancy, I, I love that feeling or the movement. I tried to organize all the chapters around it. Um, I liked it I liked it literally to begin with because the Namsadang were literally on the road all the time. I'm constantly moving. And, and what I liked about Samunori is there's a very literal aspect to their travels as well not only throughout korea but very early on um, they begin to travel i mean literally they not only all over south korea but they they very early on in their their is they're establishing the genre in the the early 80s um, you know they go to japan and then they go to the u.s and they go to europe it's this constant which is true of many musicians as you say all over many cultures i mean itinerant groups is almost a kind of a definition of of, of of what it means to be a musician in most parts of the world, and and uh, someone is always on the road too, and they kept using that image or metaphor themselves. I mean, I, I mentioned that in one of the chapters. I mean, so many CDs are called "On the Road" or or "From the Road" or "The Road," or you know, so so even in their own minds and the cover as well. Which hopefully we can talk about the cover at some point. Um, there's this beautiful shot of a road, you know, and so without beating you know readers' heads you know over the heads with this this image or idea, so there's a little literal part of itinerancy that I love, but as you say too, for me, it was, it also had to do with kind of the idea of evolution and, or for culture or aspects of tradition to kind of stay relevant or pertinent is that, yes, there's, it, it, it has to keep moving. You know, it's, it's, um, and I think for Samaloni, they kept, it had to do with not just with, with, I mean, there was movement in terms of developing of their pieces and, and not only did, not only the selection of pieces, but, you know, they constantly revised and, Updated the, the the pieces that they settled on relatively early, and you know from there they started thinking how can we work with with world musicians, you know, and and non Korean musicians, and eventually they would settle on jazz musicians, which I talk about in in uh, chapter five. But um, uh, th- you know they would look to African musicians and South American musicians and and, and uh, Southeast Asian musicians and traditions, and so there was that aspect. And then there was also the idea that they they had to think about their pedagogy; they had to keep revising and that that had audiences who weren't gonna be able to speak Korean and also a lot of what they were doing or teaching hadn't been written down. It was an oral tradition. Mm-hmm. So there's all this effort, which essentially is chapter four, which is talking about all of their pedagogical materials. And so I don't know, it just felt like they were just constantly had to keep thinking of ways to to not just modify it, but sort of explain or identify and I think to themselves as much as it was to their audiences and to their students what was important about Salomon, I mean, what people should know about it. And so as you say, I mean for me I just I mean particularly in ethnomusicology as well, but I think I think you're absolutely right about, about history and sociology and a lot of the other humanities based fields that um it's kind of organic and moving and transforming the idea of culture. And then it's also very um it's very human based. I mean culture is really, really Enacted by people. That sounds like a really silly or over, really obvious thing to say, but you know, it, it, it's easy sometimes if you read a lot of heavy theory to start talking about institutions making movement or governments making move, things like this. Where in, in almost all cases, we're really talking about a small group of individuals um, who are working together or against each other, or whatever. And I, I think, particularly with Samo, that was also part of the idea was that you essentially you have a group of about you know four musicians and about another four or five people who almost single-handedly got this entire, you know, uh, kind of movement going.
1: Thank you. Now, as we move further into the book, um, we have a chapter, Chapter 2, that looks really closely at the rise of urban culture in South Korea in the 1970s. And it focuses in particular here on Seoul. Now, here we see the transformations in the folk musical culture are really situated within broader debates about how the arts and various performative arts might serve the kind of emergence of new meanings of Korean identity in this period. Now, this chapter pays special attention to something that will also um, be really important in the next chapter, which are um, new urban spaces of performance, new urban spaces where music is not just. Performed and, and sort of enacted, but really re envisioned for a very different kind of environment. So you talk about and hear the importance of concert halls as really massive spaces, and you focus in on the importance of two in particular um, one, the National Center for Korean Traditional Performing Arts, and also the Space Theater. Talk a little bit about um, the space theater in this context and the ways that the space theater really, in many ways, lays the foundation for um, the emergence of what uh, becomes Samonori.
0: Yeah, so I was saying in the 1970s, there's um, on South Korea, there's there's a little bit of, you know. a little bit of economic stability and political stability and, and militarily wise too, there's not necessarily as much concern. There's still concern, but about North Korea. And so, uh, with, with a little bit more money, a little bit more time, and as things are leveling off in South Korea, of course, there's a chance that for many Koreans, particularly academics and those at the governmental level, to, and to think about really what it means to be Korean. And especially as the, as the world is starting, you know, this is at the front end of people beginning to talk about sort of intercultural or interactions, which, of course, have happened a lot, but in a much more accelerated rate, of course, in the 1970s and later, and what does it really mean to be Korean? And so this is a part of the discourse in South Korea everywhere about what does it mean to be Korean, and does it mean, you know, to, to distill all of this discussion down, does it mean to go back to looking at how we, you know, we, I mean, Koreans, uh, acted and dressed and ate and listened, you know, in the 1800s or the early 1900s, or does it mean, uh, because in the 1970s, already many Koreans are quite savvy in terms of Western classical music and dress and poetry and theater and modern dance. And for many of them, uh, for many Koreans at that time, being Korean meant somehow incorporating modernity You know, at the same time. And this is, of course, true of so many countries in the, in the 60s, 70s, and even 80s. And so this, this is kind of in the air in the 1970s, and you have all these different approaches to what it means in terms of kind of proportion, I guess, a ratio to how much of the West or the new or the modern or cosmopolitan is going to be overlaid or uh, is going to accompany these older ways of kind of viewing the world, you know, older Korean ways of viewing the world. So as you mentioned, this this particular theater, it's called, called the Kongan Sarang in Korean. It just means love of space, which is a beautiful name. Um, but it's, in English, it's often just called the space theater. And this was, uh, it was essentially a space group uh, to back up just a little bit, the Space Group was a group of art- architects and writers and folklorists who started a society and a newsletter, which eventually became a magazine, just called Space Kongan. And um, it was a group of like-minded individuals who, were in terms of proportion, were were very much keyed into older traditional, you know, folkways in particular, not so much core ways, but folkways. But who also felt that there had to be new, there had to be movement, there had, and these are all words that they use, and there had to be. Uh, evolution. Uh, a, a respectful, respect of the past, but some kind of respectful evolution for, for being a modern Korean. And part of their, this new vision of theirs was to create this concert hall called the Kongan Sarang, which is the, the concert hall wing of this whole larger group. And they built this concert hall in a very different way from all the other concert halls in most of the other concert halls being built in the 1970s, which were these massive 4,000, 5,000 seat theatres, essentially for Western orchestras and opera productions and huge modern dance productions accompanied by orchestra. And so, Kongan Sarang, in contrast, um, I don't have the number of seats here, it's somewhere, I think it's only a couple hundred, but essentially it built it as a small little room to mimic uh, essentially sort of the meeting or greeting room of the aristocrat of yesteryear. So a very small, intimate space, essentially to have acoustic, small ensemble traditionally-based performances, and in the beginning, they essentially programmed um, folk music or aristocratic folk music genres, which were, you know, very small in conception, and they also did a few things with uh, maybe one or two dancers with music and some vocal music concerts as well, and that was the community. This already came about uh, a number of years, already early 70s. There's a community of people going to these small concerts and thinking of ways of more intimate ways of of envisioning Korean traditional music. And that's exactly as you say, that's really, I think Samul Nori was also given an idea through that. You know, if the Kongan Sarang had never been built, I mean, you know, we could guess forever. If that small theater had never been built and that society hadn't grouped, it was hard to say if Samul Nori would have come about or it might have taken them longer, or maybe they would have initially started as a much larger group trying to match those huge concert hall stages. So I, I think you're absolutely right. That small, intimate stage uh, had a tremendous amount to do with Salma Modi coming about.
1: Now, as we move further into the book, you give us a really detailed and I think really um, really wonderful account here of the texture of one of the uh, sort of rhythmic um, entities that lead us into understanding the, really the music itself. But we get there in this chapter 3 on the road by looking first at the ways that Modi really adapted their style to urban concert hall stages. You've already talked a little bit about um, some of the transformations that were involved there, um, transformations from to, a, to an inside context, transformations in terms of relationships between musicians and their audience. You also talk here about the importance of a kind of commodification of music and the thinking of music in different kinds of units. So could you speak a little bit to that kind or that aspect of the kinds of transformations that were necessary in this part of the book for adaptation to this very different kind of musical context?
0: Yeah, so, because um, within, well, not not just uh, musicology and ethnomusicology, but the idea of the same piece, or the so-called same piece, you know, being envisioned in different contexts—everything from a live context to hearing it live on a radio broadcast, you know, to being recorded, to et etc. Cetera, et cetera. These kinds of issues uh, have all happened with Samal Modi. And for me, I thought the way, the easiest way, at least for this chapter, or for the book, for readers and others to wrap their brains around this was to pick the same piece, or at least, as you say, the same rhythm, which pieces were constructed around and then to look at the same piece as it goes through these kinds of various stages on their way to sort of this, for lack of a better term, kind of a total commodification you know, of the project. So that's the way that the chapter is organized. And just to be very brief about it, in the, in the first part of the chapter I essentially talk about the original context, which is this piece as played by the, the rural folk percussion troops in the countryside. And I distinguish there a little bit. I mean, the Nam also played this piece, so their version of it would have been a little slicker, uh, a little more impressive, but nonetheless, it would have been outside uh, with a large group, and it would have been for you know countryside village people. And so this is the original context of this piece that I look at in the chapter, and it's a piece that's been around a couple hundred years, and it's a very well known piece. And from there, the next stage then is Samuel Modi taking this piece and turning essentially what is about an hour and a half performance, boiling it down taking out sort of the most distinctive rhythms or aspects of it and boiling it down into this kind of eight, seven, eight-and-a-half-minute piece to play on a concert hall stage. And for me, that's the second stage in this sort of the evolution or the, the, the journey for this particular piece. And so it's still a live piece. It isn't commodified per se, but it is now being played on a concert hall stage. And or in the past, the concert in the countryside, it, it would have been free, and basically anyone who was there could have shown up. Now you do have this element of... of monetary exchange, which leads to quantification, of course, but to see a Nodi concert, of course, at least in these concert halls, you have to pay a lot of money, usually not a lot, but you still pay money to go see the concert, and it's now being presented on stage, and it has a little bit different meaning, although in the book I try to say that for many people coming to see Nodi for them, it's still a participatory thing, but um, the concert hall stage sort of works against that in a few ways. So that's sort of the second stage I talk about. And then the third one is uh, when this piece then becomes recorded, the Modi version becomes recorded. And the recording I focus on, uh, again, for people who know the countryside and the modi version, of course they recognize the piece, but now they can listen to the piece at, you know, like most CDs, or now MP3 files, you can listen to it at any time of day, generally out of context, and there's a little sense of distance there. And I think when, when non-Koreans, or Koreans who don't know this tradition, not wish there are many, when they hear the CD, it's still the liner notes and everything set it up. As, as a traditional performance, which I think it is, but again, now it's it's as a disc, and you don't see the live performers anymore, so now it has become commodified, both in terms of as an object that you can exchange and you pay for it, but it's completely divorced from the original, at least time-wise, and spatially it's divorced. And then the final version I show is when the same piece on CD is now joined up as a fusion work, as a hybrid work, which I discuss in more detail in the last chapter, but um, now you've got piece that is now accompaniment to a western kind of modern or avant-garde jazz setting and so now even same audiences may not recognize the Korean percussion or the, that, that piece anymore. Even though it's the same piece it's the same rhythm is being played, nearly identical in all four contexts. Now it's part of a CD that has English and it's being circulated on a world, you know, global music or pop music stage, and of course it's a commodity, but it's even that much more distance. It's it's being sold outside of Korea. Some of these recordings don't have any Korean liner notes at all, and you could even come away from the recording knowing very little or nothing about the countryside tradition. So that was really the trajectory that I tried to um, accomplish with that chapter.
1: Yeah, this is really fascinating on a number of different levels, and I won't dwell too much on this because I want to yeah, make sure that we, we get to the other chapters as well, <laughs> but I just wanna, mention for listeners, because um, not only is this... Can someone who is interested in translation studies read this as a kind of story about translation, of a particular kind of rhythmic unit or rhythmic cycle into different contexts, but also just from the perspective of someone interested in modes of argument and modes of close reading, you give us a really wonderful close reading of a musical narrative in here that really simultaneously engages a reader's attention to the story that you're telling, to this special form of musical notation, so Korean box notation, and at the same time, um, and and really simultaneously, to the songs included on the CD that accompanies the book, and so it's a really in this chapter. I just want to make sure that I, I don't let you go without at least mentioning this. Um, it's a really wonderful model of what close reading of music in context can look like, and it was I think really inspiring for me in this context.
0: Well, thank you. Because to be honest, it was one of the it was one of the chapters that was rewritten the most, <laughs> and. Uh specifically because i I've, I've done much more detailed analysis with a lot of notation and, and in earlier stages of the book I actually was was kind of ping ponging back and forth between having a, a one whole chapter of very you know a lot of notation, very dense theoretical discussion and and the editors of the book really felt it was inappropriate for the way that I'd written the other chapters and that, that it was good for me to rethink it and, and also even the notation coming up with this hybrid notation and to try to think of Simple, clear, but somewhat detailed way of getting through it. And so, you know, I haven't really had a chance to talk to a lot of basically non-Korean drummers (laughs) about this text. So uh, I'm actually quite happy that that you're you're very kind in saying that because um, this was really the chapter that went through a, a lot of revisions and a lot of lot of different, uh, I had a lot of different people read it to try to get some kind of balance there. So anyways, thank you very much for those comments.
1: Oh, my pleasure. And, and I, I'll just say, I think it really works. I think the amount of notation in the chapter is perfect. If you didn't have that kind of notation, it would be a very different experience, right, for the reader of trying to put all these different elements of the story together. But, so, uh, and also in this section, you talk um, very explicitly about the analogy of the road, which we've talked a little bit about before. Okay, so you also have a chapter here that's really, really interesting that looks at the pedagogical materials and the pedagogical um, uh, settings, um, rather, of Samo Nori and its training of musicians. Can you speak a little bit to the nature of um, what's happening in this chapter? So you're describing something that's actually really, really interesting and really surprising, which is the ways that Samo Nori integrated musical and cosmological theory into their pedagogical materials in this really interesting way. So can you speak a little bit to that?
0: Yeah, well, the way that I came into the pedagogical materials that uh, the original Samulnori group, um, already in the 80s and and early 90s, came out with these workbooks that were both in Korean and English. And they became kind of, for lack of better terms, sort of Bibles within the the Samulnori world. Uh, not only did they have notation for the pieces, but it actually gave a little bit of background history and even philosophy which which those of us uh, or for people who hadn't met the original members or or didn't have the opportunity to travel to Korea, uh, they were able to read some of the background thinking or philosophy of all of this so i you know I got my hands on these books very early in fact, when they first came out again, kind of on the slide because I was doing all this research on the folk drumming, but um, I was collecting all these books, but they kept referencing these uh sort of cosmological principles, and, and the one had to do in Korean, uh, there's a Korean term for it, but in English it's translated circle square triangle, and they, they, they melted or, or melded all of these different ways of thinking about rhythm and movement and even rhythmic structure and analysis to these, these this kind of core principle. They also brought in yin and yang, or um and yang, which most of us know, but it was everything linked back to the circle square and triangle, but they didn't really say where that came from, so I mean, I have to say it was about three years of digging around, again on the side, trying to figure out what was the meaning of these three symbols, and what were they linked to? And so that's really what this chapter fleshes out in the beginning parts, is that these are very old Chinese ritual you know, cosmological principles. Essentially, the idea of the circle is encompassing um, the heavens, and the, um, the square represents the earth, and the triangle represents humankind, and it's this kind of, There's a threeness, and there are all these numerology and other things coming together. But what for me was really interesting is that, unlike other pedagogical books uh, in Korean traditional music world or Western music world, Samul Noni was using this really old cosmological principles to base their teaching methodology on, which was sort of counterintuitive at the time, I think, in the late 80s and 90s, where all these other books were becoming very Western, uh, and a lot of them were based off of... German models and models in the West, that uh, things like uh, Kodai and and Orff and all of these sort of music pedagogical models, and Samuel Nodi was completely sidestepping all of this, and they were going back to this more than thousand year old ideas about the cosmos and humans and and rhythm and culture, and then they really ingeniously were able to map. For me, very successful. Um, I think there might be some Koreans who felt it might be a little forced, but for me, very successful way of mapping these ideas of heaven, earth, and humans, and the numerology that was assigned with it, and also the imagery of circles and squares in particular, into everything, into notation, um, into their dance, the ways of thinking about dance, the way of teaching breath, um, and even down to the musical analysis. I really only scraped the surface in this chapter. There's some really detailed Korean master's theses and dissertations that go into even, even more detail about how these cosmological principles work themselves out all the way down to the minutest level of, of um, rhythm and costuming and, and ground formations and all of this. So for me, that chapter is not only for me, but actually, to be honest, uh, for a number of Koreans and non-Koreans to actually explain what the meaning of those symbols were uh, and how how it worked its way into um, Korean pedagogy. And, and for me, because I have a lot of friends in, in um, uh, music education and also music therapy that have have looked at some of these things and, and have found that it's a really interesting way to introduce this culture as well.
1: And this really gets at also three um, major themes that are emerging in lots of the chapters in the book, right? The importance that we talk of what we talked about just before, which is this kind of way of translating something some core thing across and within very different kinds of contexts, the importance of popko uh, right, preserving the old while creating the new, and also as a way of thinking about another element of the importance of movement in space um, that we've been talking about. It's really interesting. Um, so, okay, chapter five. Uh, chapter five gets us into a super, super fascinating part of the story, and I am absolutely not going to let you get off the Skype until we talk about this because this is a fascinating chapter. Okay, so. Chapter 5 looks closely at the really, really fascinating story of the collaboration between Samul Nori and the Euro-American jazz quartet Red Sun. So the title of this is East-West Encounters in the Nanjang. So first, to take um, a term from this title, what is a Nanjang, and what significance does it have for the story that you're telling in this chapter?
0: Yeah, well, the Nanjang were these really um, kind of pre-20th century events, although they've been revived in the last few years, but Nanjang were these huge um, kind of village festivals, for lack of a better word, that, um, essentially they, they were allowed by the, the, the village elders as a way to, for sort of the local, the, the working classes essentially to be able to blow off some steam. It included things like wrestling matches and gambling and, uh, uh it, it was also huge sort of periodic markets. We had all these people coming in from various places, sometimes outside of Korea, selling various wares. And so it was this big kind of party, festival circus atmosphere that would happen anywhere for a day to a few days. And within the Nanjang, uh, for the villages that could afford it, they would off- often bring in, which is kind of going back in a theme through the book, if they could, they would bring in these itinerant troops to perform, often as the highlight of a particular festival. And if you could bring in a Namsedan troop, uh, that was really one of the best ways to kind of cap off a day or a number of days in which all of these other you know, sort of fun and craziness was going on. And so that's why I talk about Nanjang. It's it's also an important word. It, it's not, of course, I didn't make it up or even make the initial connection. The the, the original Samolodi group felt that the word Nanjang was important and the connection to Namsadang. So they, they named their first recording studio after Nanjang and they named a CD after Nanjang. And they also had a, a coffee club, which unfortunately closed a few years ago. But that was a great place to hang out as well. It was also called the Nanjang Club. So it's a connection that, Samunori also made to make that kind of, uh, and also, and I'm sorry, a key point is that the Nanjang was a place where for Korean countryside people would often see kind of foreign culture. So not just the, the Namjong, but also traveling merchants and even performers from China and other places. So the Nanjang was also a meeting space for foreign culture.
1: Great. And this element of foreign culture really gets at the importance that you're raising here of hybridity and syncretism as a powerful Tool for cross-cultural bridging and understanding, and also is an important um, sort of phenomenon to keep in mind as we look at what's happening in this part of the history of Nordi and in the history of Korean music, perhaps more generally. So you take us through this story that involves uh, the sort of founding of Korea's first rock band in the 60s into a story about jazz, mu- jazz music in Korea. Now, you mentioned that Korean folk percussion and jazz actually share some structural traits including a kind of cyclical framework, an uh, importance of rhythm, improvisation, uh, the kind of importance of balance and contrast between uh, leather and metal for material culture fans who might be listening <laughs> This all um, comes to a really wonderful conclusion in this chapter with the story about the collaboration and the ongoing collaboration. Over several CDs and several meetings between Samonori and Red Sun. So, can you talk um, for us a little bit about Red Sun? Who, who were they? Who are they? And how did they develop a relationship with Samonori?
0: Yeah, well, Red Sun, It's it again, to make the relatively long story brief, um, what happened is Samonori, as, as we were saying earlier, they were touring almost from the very beginning. And one of their favorite places to go was Europe, particularly Germany and Austria for various reasons. They, they found a, a, a huge and willing fan base there. Uh, same was true of Japan. These are kind of early places that Samunori traveled to quite regularly. And Samunori was invited as part of this huge ethnic percussion, uh, well, it was an ethnic, uh if it was world or ethnic percussion uh, uh, festival that was taking place in Austria. And during this time, Samunori met this um, sax, uh, saxophonist and flute player named Wolfgang Puschnig, who who um, is very famous in the, in the new music scene and the kind of avant-garde jazz scene in Europe, particularly Western Europe. And they kind of struck up a friendship, and um, so much so that they um, essentially invited um, Puschnig to come back to Korea to do some concerts with them. And, and that was the beginning. I don't think they realized how far this collaboration was going to go, but that was the initial contact point, was this one jazz musician who was very well-known in Austria and Germany, Uh, collaborating with Samomori as an individual. And from there, they began to think, well, why don't we try to get a kind of a complement group, sort of a a, a Western jazz quartet to match the original Samomori quartet. So this is really where the idea of Red Sun was born. And so um, Hushnig, on the the Austrian-European jazz side, essentially uh, got together a vocalist who was his partner at the time and then also brought in initially a pianist and later became a guitarist and also a bass player, uh, two musicians from the U.S. that he had collaborated with. So really, Red Sun was only formed at the beginning as a counterpart, a direct counterpart to Samo Mori, for the idea of doing collaborations. Um, I don't think in the beginning they had planned on doing such an ambitious collaboration, uh, although I talk about this in the book. Initially, it was really just about putting one CD out together, but more importantly, doing a number of concerts uh, that they would do both in Europe and in Korea and also Japan. and So that was the the beginning of this kind of relationship between Red Sun and Samonori. And then, as I outline in this chapter, over time, um, they became more and more interested in each other's music. I mean, Red Sun started learning Korean drumming. A number of the Samonori guys started learning Western harmony, and they see of them holding guitars and, you know, Casio keyboards and stuff like that, trying to figure out each other's music and listening to each other's music. Samonori listening to Western jazz, avant-garde jazz, different ways of improvising. And then the Western jazz musicians listening to Korean vocal music and um, studying Korean music theory, for example, and learning these really complex, amazing rhythms, which, you know, I talk about a little bit in chapter three. And so by the end of the chapter, I really talk about what ends up becoming this nearly decade-long interaction, which results in four CDs, but also hundreds, I mean, in the end, it's hundreds of workshops and concerts and um, spin-off CDs from that project. So that's how the two came together.
1: And listeners, um who may not know this, if you buy the book, you also get a CD that includes three of the recordings um, by uh, this collaboration of Red Sun and Samulnori that you talk about in this chapter. Now, in addition to talking in this chapter about this um, this changing nature of their collaboration that we can chart over the course of their concerts together and their recordings. You end with, or, or pretty close to the end, you mentioned one of your own performances in 2008 at UBC. Um, that's actually, um, it's available on YouTube, and I went and I listened to it before we talked, and it's fantastic. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that? What was the nature of your own performance? Um, Work in bringing together different these different musical registers, and can you talk a little bit about that experience?
0: Yeah, and I think we're talking about the fusion piece, yes. The
1: fusion piece, yeah, in 2008. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, that was essentially that was. Uh, it's just called. Mm-hmm. I'm not very creative with titles, and also I'm not <laughs> much of a composer, so it was. It's called Samal Rock Fusion, mm-hmm. uh, Samalodian rock music, and the instrumentation is is the traditional. And percussion quartet, uh, two drums and two gongs, but um, also included a large Javanese gong because we have a large gamelan program here, but also I happen to love the, the sound and the size of the gong, and then also an electric bass and electric guitar. And so, um, and this was a project that grew out of essentially a um, number of graduate students we had in the program at the time who were already doing their own fusion projects that were envisioning Balinese gamelan for rock group and and other people doing Javanese music for, for bluegrass ensemble. And so there's all this other and kind of amazing craziness going on at school. And um, the funny thing is that there's the set of Korean rhythms that, for whatever reasons, when I was learning them a number of years ago, in my head I could always sing out the electric bass and electric guitar part. And, and this will probably come up at the end of the interview in terms of future research directions. But mm-hmm. I listened to a lot of rock music. And for, for whatever reason, these, there were about three Korean rhythms in particular that always triggered this kind of uh, bass line and also a kind of melodic line with electric guitar. So I'd already, for fun, started sketching down this information. And as I said, I've never composed before this. Uh, And so when I saw that a number of students were beginning to organize this fusion concert, I thought I'd push myself to continue in this vein. So that that was the Mm -hmm. genesis for that. But but it also felt right in a way because I had a number of Samulnodi teachers by this point, uh, by mid-2000s, who were saying... Oh, well, Nathan, you should—you know—you you know a lot of the Samwellite pieces fairly well, and you know there aren't a lot of fusion pieces except for this Red Sun stuff. And um, you know, two thousand eight, Red Sun had already disbanded, and they weren't really working with Samwellite so much. And so they said, "Why don't you try doing your own fusion piece?" So, um, whether or not you know listeners enjoy it or not um, it was a whole separate issue. But for me, it was really fun to myself to try to put together rhythms and that. Uh, instrumentation and, and and since that time we've actually performed it about five times. But as you said, I think one of I think that very first performance is up on YouTube.
1: Yes, it's wonderful, and I urge listeners to go there. And um, in the book, you actually give the uh, web address for the YouTube video, so it's great. Well, Nathan, we've taken up a whole lot of your time. I'll just mention for listeners um, right before we wrap up. Uh, with our final questions, that there is this wonderful conclusion that really um, takes this story and brings it into um, your thoughts about the future of Korean traditional music and which groups might be embodying that. We revisit the theme here of this chung shin. Um, And you consider throughout the book, but really in this conclusion very directly, the nature of of one of the things that came up at the very beginning of our conversation, this cultural asset system of the Korean government and its significance for the future of musical performance in Korea. So there's lots more um, in the book that we didn't actually have a chance to talk about, but that I just want to gesture at. For listeners, um, who I hope will be looking at the book, um, if they haven't already, after this conversation. So Nathan, now that um, there's obviously a ton of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Um, but it, now that we're uh, at the end, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you want to mention for the sake of listeners? And um, in addition to, and I know one of those things is going to be the cover, because uh, you already talked about that. So um, do you want to say a little bit about the cover, and is there anything else that you'd like to mention for listeners?
0: Yeah, well, before the cover, well, I'm on, on a less serious note, <laughs> um, I think um, what's interesting when I was in conversations with uh, my doctoral supervisor, who I'm still in touch with uh, quite a bit, and... Uh, who's written quite a bit about the cultural asset system, uh, he felt after he had gone through Salmonori with me, I mean, once it was published, he had seen earlier versions, of course, but uh, with the f- with the final product, he felt that I was, it seemed like I'd been a little bit unfair or critical of the cultural asset system, which, in the conclusion, I am. But I, I think if I can clarify it all, because, of course, with the book, you know, once it's set in print, it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to change what's there, unless you add a, you know, a post or something, you know, down the road. Um, but uh, I think if there's any clarification there, it's that for me, because I read about this in my first book on on folk drumming, uh, the cultural asset system I, I think absolutely was central to saving a lot of Korean traditional culture. I mean, I, I want to be clear about that in this book as well, that I, I feel that if, if that system hadn't been there, its warts and, and conflicts and and challenges and everything, you know, notwithstanding that, that system hadn't been in place, I just think Korea would have lost a tremendous amount of their their performative culture in particular. And so what I'm critical about in the back of this book is that I feel that the cultural asset system, in my opinion, doesn't work particularly well for those folk traditions that were always based on movement and generation and improvisation in particular. So I think there's some folk traditions that work really well with the cultural asset system. But I think Nam Sedan was a, a group that maybe never should have been designated only because the cultural asset system, you, once you're documented, you have to play the way this this document, whenever that document in that chosen or frozen, you know, moment in time and space, you can't evolve or move away from that particular version. And I think that's just antithetical to what the Namsadang stand for. So for me, the, the, I, I felt the asset system doesn't work particularly well for a group like the Sedan. But it's not that it doesn't work well. really, really well for court and aristocratic you know, genres and even a fair number of kind of sort of for lack of better term uh, aristocratic folk genres. I just think with Nam Sedang and some of the more shaman-based musics as well, protory-based musics that the cultural asset system doesn't maybe shouldn't have been used with these. And I think particularly now as we look into the, the you know, 21st century, I don't know that I feel like the cultural asset system is holding back. Um, a couple of these genres, for example, like Nam and, and I know we don 't have much time to discuss this but that was something I talked about briefly in the book and many conversations i 've had with my Nam teachers that it's it 's a kind of frustration that they feel as well mm-hmm. so that's that 's in terms of a little more serious I'm on a lighter note the um, uh, you know the covers for books it 's kind of a funny thing for people if if they aren't if they haven 't published an academic book or haven 't worked with it often you know with earlier books or with some publishers. Often the author has has no choice, you know, in the cover art, um, and I think that's changing a little bit. But with this particular book, this this was the cover that I always wanted. This this is a book. This, obviously, listeners can't see it. Um, this is a cover that was taken in in the nineteen eighties, and it was by a very famous Japanese photographer who had, was touring with Samuel Noye, kind of at the height of their popularity, and he took some of these really amazing shots of the group. And the one that's here, to describe it briefly, it's it's Kim Doksu. It's not me. People ask me if this was me. It's not me. Um Kim Doksu, one of the original founders of the group, is a back shot from him and he's wearing an outfit, which in this context could be a Samul outfit. It could be a Nam outfit, uh, it could be any one of these outfits. And he's walking down this road and the picture actually extends over onto the back cover, so you have to open up the whole thing to see it, but it's like walking between these mountain ranges and the sense of distance and travel. And it's a little bit lonely feeling. I didn't really mean for the book to be nostalgic, necessarily, although I think a lot of the quotes I use are nostalgic, but um, so, but this cover I'd wanted, and, and again, make slightly, I'm making this longer than it needs to be, but uh, it was very difficult to get the, the permissions for this because it was difficult to find the photographer who's passed away, and it was difficult to find um, who, who had permissions and who would have the rights and how we could get it. And this, this was about a nine-month project, actually, trying to get this cover. And, in fact, it went away. There was going to be a different cover up until very, very close to publication deadline. And then we were able to locate uh, the permissions for this cover. And it also matches one of their classic CDs from the late 1980s. And there's just a whole bunch of reasons that I wanted this. So it's kind of a funny thing maybe to end this on. But uh, I'm really happy with the cover.
1: <laughs> and um, also people who go to the site for this interview will be able to see a picture of the cover. So... Okay, great. Beautiful cover. So, Nathan, um, I know we we don't have much time. I know you you probably have to run, but what's next for you? Now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book. As I've said, it's wonderful. What um, is currently inspiring you right now?
0: Uh, Well, it will seem like, to be brief, uh, it will seem like a a complete uh, sort of 180-degree turn in research direction. Um, Actually, this uh, last year and a half, I've been um, working on a new research area, which is it's still based on rhythm, but otherwise no connection to Korea. And I've been looking at, um, rhythmic ambiguity, particularly at the beginnings of songs in British rock music. Mm. So, uh, and the thing that links the two, I think has to do with rhythm. If, if, if I come up with a, sem- a semi fancy way of connecting the two, I would say it has to do with rhythm and social meaning. So for me, it's, uh, as I start working my way now into British rock, but particularly the use of rhythm, by particular bands and particular composers. Um, it's also, a, it's a kind of communication happening through a rhythmic lens that I'm interested in. And so I guess that's a way of linking it. All the ways that I've tried to link, you know, broader ideas or subjects to rhythm through the lens of Korean, you know, full percussion. And so, um, but this is music that I've, again, just to finish up, this is, this is music that really I grew up with um, having older brothers uh, in a basement listening to this music, but it's, it's not exactly, I'm not quite that old, but um, a lot of, Bands that I'm looking at in the 60s, 70s, and 80s uh, do really, really interesting things rhythmically. And so for me, it's it's um, it's, it's kind of doing fieldwork at home, or it's kind of coming back to a music that I know really well. And it, it, it's also a little bit of a political, slight political move on my on my side as well, because I think within the broader field of ethnomusicology, there's there's kind of this challenging of, of this idea that we always have to study the other, or we always have to go really far away you know, just for a study, you know, for research objects or people that we work with. And even though East Asia actually feels quite close to me, uh, having, you know, grown up in Japan and spending all this time in East Asia, it's still, it's nice for me to, in a way, come back to music that I grew up with and that I have you know, a very different kind of relationship with. So that's, I think that's going to occupy me now for for some time. And actually, my, my first article on this will come out in two weeks from now, and it will be on Radiohead. So for listeners who are interested in Rhythmic ambiguity in the music of radio. Uh, it's it's a it's a, a journal called Music Theory Online, and you can access it for free from anywhere. So, if you just punch in Nathan Hesling in Music Theory Online, in about three weeks, I'll uh, be able to read it.
1: Perfect. And I'll I'll try to include a link to that on the post as well. Well, thank you, Nathan. This has been wonderful. The new project sounds fantastic too. And congratulations again. It's really been a pleasure.
0: Great. Thank you so much
1: you've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll look forward to seeing you next time.